Well, again, good morning. My name is Carlos. And good morning to everyone in Quakertown. I hope you're having a great day, and uh, I hope that Charles is behaving himself and treating you well. I expect a full report when I get back. And we're in the middle of a series that we're calling This is the Life. And if you've been here during this series and you've listened to Charles talk, you would have heard him say stuff like, as we read about Jesus' life, as we hear what he says, the statement, this is the life, becomes pretty clear. This is the life that he paid for. This is the life that he purchased with his sacrifice of his life. This is the life that God intended for us. This is the abundant life, life to its fullest. And what we've said in this series is that we hope as we examine this life that Jesus offers us, that he offers us and expects us to live in a way as continuing the mission that he started. As we examine this life, as we do some comparisons and contrasts, What we hope is that we will see that the life that Jesus offers us is so much greater than any we could have come up with, desired, or pursued. This is the life. It is a life that is full. It is a life that is abundant. But it also has pain. You see, we're going to do a little bit of a shift today and acknowledge something When Jesus offers this life, he's not offering us one that does not include pain. Something that frustrates me so much is when I hear different preachers talk about the gospel and talk about how the gospel really just simply means that I can prosper or I can have a stress-free, happy life. That might be their gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus acknowledges, in fact, he tells us that there will be times of trial. There will be difficulty. Yes, there is joy. Yes, there is love. Yes, there is forgiveness. But there is also hardship. It is life and life to its fullest. You see, Jesus experienced the ultimate cost to bring to us life. That through grace we could have that life free. But when we gain that life, we also gain a mission. And that mission is to go and seek others so that they could be introduced to Jesus and also gain that life as well. And it is in that mission that we see a little bit of the cost. You see, there is no cost to obtain that life. But as we live that life and live that mission, there is a cost to following the one who supplied that life. And we're going to read a story in the Bible today where we'll get a little bit of a glimpse of exactly what that cost is that Jesus paid. And hopefully, as we do that, we get a glimpse of the life we are to live and the cost we are to pay. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there are different ways you can follow along. You can read on the screens up here. You can take your phone or tablet out and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. If you're in Souderton, you can take the Bible out of the seat rack in front of you and read there. If you're in Quakertown, we don't have seat racks, so you might just want to raise your hand and someone will bring a Bible to you. Now, whether you're in Souderton or Quakertown, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible home. 
It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. And so we want you to have one. So take it home or go out to the Info Hub and ask them to give you a Bible there. And if you don't know how to read a Bible, give us a call. We'd be more than happy to walk you through that. But we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 8. Beginning at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. It's just four verses. But in those four verses, we get this picture of who Jesus is in the life he lived. And we get a picture of who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus in the life we are to live. And the first thing we need to understand is this. This was not simply a physical healing. Yeah, there was a physical healing that occurred, but there was something so much more that occurred as well. You see, this story centers around. This story centers around something deeper. In this chapter, if you were to read the whole chapter of Matthew 8, you'll see that there are other people who are healed in this chapter. Jesus, there's three main stories of when Jesus heals different people. And then at the end, there's a couple sentences of how Jesus heals many people. And we see Jesus' authority over sickness and everything. But in all of those stories, the word heal is used. It's not used in this story at all. This story is different. You see, this story centers around the man's desire to be clean. To be clean. And in order to fully understand what this is about, in order to fully understand what this man's desire is, you need to understand the book of Leviticus. If we were to go back into the Old Testament, and if we were to go back and look at the third book of the Bible, we would find the book of Leviticus, and where we would read of the different laws that God gave his people. And as we read those laws, we would get to a certain chapter that talked about leprosy and skin disease and all sorts of things. And if we would read that chapter, we would learn something. That leprosy was not simply this this disease, this damaging disease. It was a sentence to be an outcast. It was a sentence to live the life of an outcast. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, it says this. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Leprosy was more than just a sickness. In fact, the people of both the Old and New Testament looked at it as almost a curse from God. It was a death sentence. And healings were rare. It is rare to to read in the Bible of a healing from leprosy. 
In fact, it was considered by some so difficult, it was almost as if you were asking someone to raise someone from the dead. If you look at the book of 2 Kings, there's actually a story of, of someone who's healed from leprosy. His name is Naaman. He's, he's a soldier. And he's a soldier from, of a king of a different country, not Israel. This king sends Naaman to the king of Israel and says, go and get Naaman healed. The king of Israel's response is he tears his clothes and cries out in despair. And he says, who am I? Can I bring the dead to life? Leprosy was a death sentence. It was a sentence of living a life as an outcast. It was virtually impossible to change that sentence. That just didn't happen. And that's important to understand. It's important to understand what was going on in this man's head as he approaches Jesus. He's living the life of an outcast. He's living the life of a death sentence. He knows the truth. That this simply just does not change. It's rare. It's as difficult as if the dead had to be brought back to life. And if you understand that, then the way that the man approaches Jesus is amazing. Because he approaches Jesus, and what does he say? He says, if you are willing. If you are willing. If you are willing is different than if you are able. The man sees Jesus for who Jesus really is. He sees Jesus' authority. And he says, if you are willing. But not only that. He throws himself at the feet of Jesus. So close that Jesus just has to reach over to touch him. That is huge. We might not think that that's important, but it is such a big thing in that culture. And here's why. You have to go back and understand Leviticus. You have to go back and understand the audacity of this act. Someone with leprosy who was considered unclean in that time, you were required to stay about six feet away from them. In fact, if someone with leprosy were to go and throw themselves in front of a rabbi, that was a risky move because the rabbi had every right to respond to that audacious act. That rabbi could have had that man shunned or rejected, but worse, that man could have been stoned for what he did. And yet this man runs and throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, if you are willing. You see, this man did not simply know the truth of the capabilities of Jesus. He knew the truth of the character of Jesus. And he knew the truth that there is no one so unclean that they cannot come to Jesus. He did not simply know the truth of the capabilities of Jesus. He knew the truth of the character of Jesus. And he knew that there is no one, no one, no one who is so unclean, so dirty, so sinful, there is no one who cannot come to Jesus. This is the attitude of the heart of the man who approaches Jesus and makes this bold, audacious request. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? 
Well, he makes them clean. But how does he do it? He touches the man. He touches the man, the one who up until that point probably hadn't felt the touch of someone else in a long time. He touches this man who is deemed unclean. And again, if we understood the law, if we understood what was going on in that culture, we would understand that this is radical. Jesus takes the law and he flips it upside down. You see, if someone else had touched this man, if someone else had touched someone with leprosy, they would have taken that label of being unclean and owned it for themselves as well. When unclean meets clean, both are unclean. And yet Jesus flips this upside down, and he does it so many times in the Gospels. There's another point in the, in the Bible, a different story, where a woman comes up to Jesus and she has this disease of this discharge of blood. And this type of disease would have caused her to be unclean. And she touches Jesus. Again, if she were to touch anyone else, unclean plus clean equals unclean. But she touches Jesus and immediately she is healed and made clean. Again, there's another point where there is a, a little girl who has died. And Jesus goes and he brings her back to life. And how he does it is he reaches out his hand and takes a hold of her hand and brings her back to life. In that time, someone or something dead would have, touching that would have made you unclean. Again, unclean plus clean usually equals unclean. But Jesus turns it upside down so that when the unclean meets the one who is completely clean, it equals that both are clean. Jesus shows that he has full authority over the law. And then he does something even more amazing and wild. He tells the man to go and show himself to the priests. He tells the man, go show yourself to the priest. He's not bragging. He's not like, look at what I did. Go tell them. That's not what he's doing. Again, in Leviticus, we read that that was the ritual. That was the process. A priest could declare someone clean who was unclean, but it was this whole process. And they had to be fully healed. And so Jesus says, go and Abide by the law. Jesus actually submits to the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as that man goes and obeys Jesus and goes and shows himself to the priest, what ends up happening is that the law begins to point to Jesus. The law begins to be a witness to Jesus' authority. And once again, Jesus is proclaimed as the one who has the ultimate power in this story. Jesus makes the man clean. He makes him clean. But that is only the surface level of what happened. You see, there is something a little bit deeper. Something that we have to understand. Something that we can't understand unless we put ourselves in the shoes of this man. Jesus made this man clean 
but he also restores him. Jesus restores this man. Growing up, um, I had a group of friends that we always just hung out together, okay? And their names were good Souderton names. Zamari, <laughs> Rafiq, Rashid, good Souderton names. But there was also another one in our group. His name was Mike, Michael. We grew up knowing each other from kindergarten, and we went through all elementary school. We actually went, some of us went to the same high school. The other ones went to our rival high school. We knew each other. We did life together. We were on the same Little League baseball teams. We went to the same church. We slept over at each other's houses. But at some point in growing up, something happened. At some point in growing up, Mike seemed to move away from the group. I'm not sure if he moved away or if he pushed him away, because what ended up happening was Mike started to be part of a different group, and we started to act like he wasn't part of our group. There was still Zamari, Rafiq, Rashid, and Carlos, but no Mike. And I'll never forget the day when one day in church in class, it was either eighth grade or freshman year of high school, the teacher was talking about cliques. He was talking about groups. And Mike raised his hand. He goes, yeah, there's groups here. There's cliques. And he was sitting in the front of the room, and I was sitting in the back with my friends. And he was sitting with his friends. And Mike turns around, and he just points his finger right at me. And he says, there's a group right there. I used to be part of that group. I don't know what happened but I'm not a part of that group anymore. And he just looked at me for a few seconds, just staring me in the eyes, expressing a pain that I had not noticed before. And I wanted to make it better. I wanted to be like, dude, you're still part of us. Come here. Bring it in. Bring it in for a hug. Come on. These hands are open. They want a hug. I couldn't do that. I couldn't say anything, because as I stared at the hurt in his eyes, I knew that anything I said would sound empty because of the actions of my life and the actions of my friends. There is a pain that comes from not being a part of a group. There is a deeper pain that comes from once being part of a group and then no longer being part of that group. There's a pain of being cast out of a community, of being an outcast. That's what this man experienced. Sometimes we read a story, and since we only know just this little snapshot of people, we look at their label, a man with leprosy, and we look at that and we don't think about the moment before. Who was this man? More than likely, he didn't live with leprosy all of his life. Was he married? Did he have children? Did he have a job? Did he own land? Was he a servant? Was he a religious leader? Who was he? We don't know. What we do know is that leprosy did not discriminate. 
It chose anyone and everyone it could. And so this man at one point sees a little mark on his skin. Doesn't pay much attention to it, but it begins to grow. It begins to spread. And he is now given a sentence of being an outcast. He can no longer hug his wife. He can no longer kiss his children goodnight. He must leave his home. He must leave everything. His life is over. He is not allowed to participate in the religious rituals of the temple. He is, in fact, separated from God or any way of worshiping God. Everything that he knew has been stripped away. He becomes an outcast. When Jesus makes this man clean, he restores him. He sends him first to the priests. He restores the act of the ritual acts of worship. He restores his relationship with God. And when he does that, he restores this man's relationship with his community. See, as this man is restored in his relationship with God, he is now no longer unclean. He is clean. And because he is clean, he can now go back to his community. Jesus restores his relationship with others. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what he needs to do for us. All of us at some point need to be made clean and have our relationship restored with God and restored with others. And if we were to continue in the mission of Jesus, if we were to continue what he started, we are to play whatever part that God leads us to. Whatever part that God leads us to in hopes that those around us are also restored in their relationship with God and restored in their relationship with others. You see, there is something deeper in this story that we have to understand. If this story simply ended, if this was the end of the story of Jesus and all we had was that Jesus made this man clean and he restored his relationships by making him part of the community again, then the story would have been incomplete. The story would have been incomplete. Because while Jesus restores this man to the ritual acts of worship, there is a separation, there is an act of being cast out that needs to be fixed, that isn't fixed until we read later on in the Gospels. As we move further on in Jesus' life, as we move further on, to his death and resurrection. You see, just like you and me, this man is an outcast on a whole different level. If we go back to the beginning of the story, if we go back to not the beginning of this story of this man, the story of the Bible, if we go back to the beginning of God's story, We'll see that our first parents decided that 
they knew better than God. They rebelled against God. And they sinned and rejected him. And the result was that they were cast out. Not simply cast out of a garden, but cast out of the presence of God. Completely and destructively separated from him. With no way to bridge that separation. They were cast out in all of humanity from that point on. Experienced that same result, that same separation, that same casting out from the presence of God. And so something had to happen. A shift had to occur. A shift had to occur. And we get a, a glimpse of that shift in Matthew chapter 8. As we go further on, I said that in Matthew chapter 8, it talks about Jesus healing this man, and then he heals other people in there, and he heals many. And then this statement happens in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. In the midst of all of this sickness, in the midst of all of these diseases, Jesus takes up these infirmities, diseases that are not his. These infirmities and diseases are the result of a rejection that he did not participate in. These infirmities and diseases are the result of a sin that he never committed. He takes them on. There's a shift. But this shift is greater than what we read there. You see, what's being quoted in this, in this book of Matthew, in this eighth chapter of Matthew is actually a verse from Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, prophet Isaiah writes this chapter, and he writes it, and it's attributed as a prophetic psalm pointing towards Jesus. A prophetic writing. And if we were to look at this verse that's quoted in Matthew, and then we were just to look at the verse right before it, just right before it, we see how amazing the shift really is. Let's review for a second. The man who threw himself at Jesus' feet was rejected by others. The man who threw himself at Jesus' feet was despised by those around him. The man who threw himself at Jesus' feet was an outcast. In Isaiah chapter 53, the verse right before the one that's quoted in Matthew 8 says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low self-esteem. If this verse points to Jesus, then the real person who is despised in this story is not the man with leprosy. It's Jesus. The real one who is rejected it's not this man with leprosy. It's Jesus. The real outcast 
was Jesus. Jesus becomes the outcast. Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast. Jesus, who in himself is fully God, deserving of all praise, deserving of all worship, comes and lives a life as fully man, a perfect life, one of caring for others, meeting the needs of those who are sick, meeting the needs of those who are hungry, meeting the needs of those who are poor, making others clean, restoring their relationships with God, restoring their relationship with others, someone who should be celebrated. But as we move through his story in the Gospels, we get to a point where he is not celebrated, but he is rejected. He is despised. He is mocked. He is spat on. He is beaten. He is the outcast. And cries that just a little bit earlier had shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, now become bloodthirsty cries, crying out for Jesus' blood. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Jesus becomes the outcast. But it becomes even so much, much more intense than that. With his arms stretched out on a cross, in complete agony and pain, he experiences the greatest anguish he could ever experience as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who was completely perfect, who had never sinned, who had never done anything wrong, who had never experienced separation from his Father, extends his hands out on a cross and is cast out from the presence of God himself, of his Father. He takes on the punishment that he didn't deserve. He takes on the punishment of yours and mine and is cast out from the presence as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast so that outcasts can have life. Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast so that outcasts can have life. So what about me? Where do I fit into this? What about you? Where do you fit into this? Where do we fit into this story with outcasts? What is our heart towards the outcast? What will our week be like when it comes to the outcast? A couple weeks ago, Charles talked about Tables in school. He talked about the tables filled with intellectuals. He talked about the tables filled with jocks. He talked about the tables filled with musicians and, and, and all of these different tables. He forgot a table. He forgot a table. He forgot the table where someone sits alone, not part of any group, rejected by everyone. 
in school, what will be my attitude to that table? Am I willing to sit there? Because that comes with a cost. That comes with a cost. What about outcasts in my family? The sister or brother whom no one talks to. That parent, that father-in-law, that mother-in-law who has hurt people so no one talks to that person. We don't even acknowledge that they ever existed. They are the outcasts of the family. This week, when I pick up my phone, will I call the outcast? That comes with a cost. That comes with a cost. The outcast in my neighborhood, the outcast in my community, the outcast around me. What will my week be like this week? Will I pay the cost? When it comes to us as a church, when it comes to Calvary Church, will we do whatever it takes to reach the outcast? To reach those who have been cast out from God's presence? To reach those who need to hear the gospel? Will we do whatever it takes? We better. Because someone had to do it before us so that we could shift from outcast to life. Someone did it for us. We better do it for someone else. Last week, Charles uh, ended the service by talking about one of our founding members who is no longer with us, Les Clemens. And as I was thinking about the funeral this week, It struck me. That generation was willing to literally become outcasts so that people would be reached by the gospel. They were willing to literally become outcasts. Charles said something last week. He expressed a fear. He said that there are a lot of our founding members who seem to be leaving us. And Charles's fear was, who's coming up behind them? Who's coming up behind them? May I be so bold to say, for those of us who are following that generation... Let's grab the baton. Let's grab the baton and run the race and continue what Jesus started. Let's be willing to sacrifice as others have sacrificed before us. Let's be willing to sacrifice our preferences, our time, our resources, whatever it takes. Let's give up everything because that's what Jesus paid for us. Our life is free because of grace, but it costs Jesus everything. So as we live lives, continuing that mission and bringing others to the foot of that cross so that they can come to Jesus and shift from outcast to life, let's give everything. Are we willing to pick up that baton and run? 
Are we willing to become outcasts so that lives can be changed by the gospel? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for your grace and how you've changed our lives. We enter the story an outcast, separated from God, completely and utterly hopeless. And nothing that we could do on our own abilities would change that. Lord, there are people who went before us, willing to give up everything, willing to live lives as an outcast, literally and figuratively, willing to pay the cost. And because of that, the gospel changed our lives. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who walked in feeling like, man, I'm not a part of this church thing. I'm too messed up. I am that outcast. Let them know that Jesus came just for them. Let them know as they walked into this church feeling like, I'm the outcast here. Let them know that's why Calvary Church exists for someone like you. We're a church made up of outcasts. That because of grace... We're given new life. Help us this week to give up everything so that the gospel would be clear to those around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.